Spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. Crash landed. From comics to video games. From the cinematic universe to television. Connecting you to the biggest stars in the industry. Something out there had discovered us. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Chapters old and new with a story this week. That's right, it's episode 262 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. The reason for that is, first of all, kind of starting a brand new chapter on the 100 this season for season six, aren't we? We're going to hear all about it. My interviews from WonderCon this past year with the cast and creator. You're talking about Eliza Jane, Tasia Tellis, Richard Harmon, a whole bunch of the cast going to talk to me about what to expect Coming up in Season 6 of The 100, which premieres on The CW on Tuesday, April the 30th. And, of course, Gotham came to an end this past week as well. How about a spoiler-filled review of the series finale of Gotham? But you know how we start the show every week, and we're going to do it this week as well. going to talk about comics. It's what we're reading on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is writer Brandon Easton, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Push the power button on that laptop or your tablet. How about the long box? Let's bring that out and talk about what we're reading. And this week, it is the final voyage of the Starship Enterprise. That's right. It's Star Trek Year 5, number 1, from IDW, which is written by Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. Stephen Thompson on the art. Charlie Kirchhoff on the colors. Neil Utake on the letters. And Greg Gildebrandt on the cover. Now, this book kind of does... Well, a lot of similar stories do in this circumstance, and that's kind of starting us off at the end, right at the beginning of the book. So it's almost like you're getting a preview of what is going to be that final moment. But you know, let's go back to the beginning because we have to find out how they got there. Now, we know that this is the final year of the final voyage. Now, we just need to know what the circumstances were. Now, it starts out with possibly being the most dangerous mission that they've ever had. Now, in true Star Trek fashion, we get all of the scientific details about what they're doing and why it will probably kill them, which was really, really great to see. Now, I will say this, too. Now, fans of the original series will get exactly the Spock they want, exactly the bones they want, and the Chekhov that they want. A couple of other characters sprinkled in, too. What we do get to see, though, is a bit of a different and conflicted Kirk. Now, he gets some news at one point during this issue that I won't spoil that will... He doesn't really know how to take it, but it absolutely plays a role in his immediate decision-making in this story. Now, he decides to break away from this original mission, the dangerous one that I was mentioning, to follow a distress call. Now, while investigating that, they make kind of a really grisly discovery on the on this planet. Again, not something I'm going to spoil for you. Now, the answer is kind of thrown right at them, or maybe it's not. I guess that's kind of, we don't know that for sure at the end of this issue. It's just something we can assume at this point. Now, the final choice that Kirk makes at the very end of this first issue could be what ends up ultimately dooming them in the end, but we'll have to wait and see what happens there. Now, right off the bat, the art in this book is so good. I was so drawn in by it, pun absolutely intended. Probably some of the best art I've seen in a Star Trek book in a while, and that's not taking a jab at any other artists that have worked on Star Trek because there have been some good ones, but it's just some of the detail work in this book was so great, especially in the character designs. There was there was a lot of care there to me in the designs of these original series characters and almost making them jump off the page as if we were watching an episode of the original series, and that, and that is the biggest compliment, compliment that I could possibly give. And then you've got Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly, who just, I mean, the love that they have for these characters is all over every single panel of this book. You can tell they poured their heart and soul into every little detail here to make sure that Star Trek fans get what they wanted out of an important story like this. This is a big deal for Star Trek fans. And, and this is something that, you want to get right, so you want to put the creators in the positions that are going to want to, at the end of the day, know that they did right by the fans here. And I think that that's exactly, this is a good start. Anyway, I mean, there's a couple of good hooks here, and I think that we only have a small hint of what the end game is. And you know you can't, don't spoil the end game 
right? Can't do that under any circumstances, no matter, no matter what we're talking about. So this is a poll for me. I was so glad that this was as good as I knew that it could be. Star Trek Year 5, number one from IDW. Really looking forward to seeing what's next there. Start of a new arc for Batgirl this week. Yeah, I haven't talked about Batgirl in a while, so let's talk about issue number 34 of Batgirl from DC Comics. And, of course, we have Meredith Scott still doing the writing there. Paul Pelletier on the pencils. Norm Ratmond on the inks. Jordi Belair on the colors and Amworld Design on the letters. Frances Manipal on the cover, too, by the way. Now, if you haven't read any Batgirl up to this point or if it's been a while, going to be a couple of spoilers here from the last issue and in the last arc, too, because I have to tell you a couple of things in order to actually review review this book. Now, the aftermath here is, is that Congresswoman Alejo has been elected to Congress, representing Gotham, much to the dismay of Fox, Shark, and Vulture. Now, the question is, what are they going to do about it now? Their plan to, to make sure that she wasn't going to get elected was ultimately foiled. That was Fox's plan, too, by the way, so the heat is on him to find out what he what they're supposed to do next. Now, meanwhile, we see Barbara's really trying to juggle three things at once, maybe four. I mean, if you count her personal life, you've got, you know, she's working on this on the campaign. She's got her company, too, by the way, and she's got the fact that, well, she's Batgirl. So we've got Babs and Batgirl and just trying to balance all this stuff. And this is nothing new for characters like this, but she keeps adding more stuff on to the pile, and that definitely plays a role And what's happening throughout this issue, she's also still at odds with her dad, as we've seen in previous issues. I mean, not telling her about James and the fact that he was pretty damn evil was a big part of that. That it seems like there's really more to it. And I I think that we will definitely get to that as the story comes up a little bit. And this particular arc is supposed to run for three issues, too, by the way. One of three, according to the beginning of the story here. Now, something happens at the congresswoman's office that really leads Babs... I guess I can call her Babs. We're, we're close enough at, at this point, right, that I can call her Babs. She goes down the path of several dis- different investigations. And, you know, in true bat book fashion, they sort of converge, and she heads out to find out who's responsible for leading her there. Now, how do you think that turned out? Honestly, I mean, it's the first issue of an arc. What do you think happened? I'm not going to spoil it for you, but you could probably guess what happens here. And we do get to find out what Fox's plan is, and it could be the start of some really, really big trouble for Batgirl and Barbara Gordon, too, for that matter. So that's where I'm going to go ahead and leave it as a little bit of a cliffhanger from this particular issue. Now, the art and colors in this book are really, really good. Colors shouldn't surprise you from Jordy Belair. Everybody everybody on the art team did a fantastic job. I, I like that there's a little bit of a darker tone in the colors, though. We don't really see that from a Batgirl book too much. It's almost like... You know when the music gets ominous, when you're watching something and you know bad things are ahead, it's like, okay, these are some darker colors, there might be some trouble, might be some bad stuff coming here, and I'm not saying that's what it is, but that's the vibe that I got anyway, especially in certain pages of this book. Now, (laughs) Bard trying to flirt with Barbara is so painfully great to read, and Marigrid Scott does such a good job with that awkward relationship. Awkward for him, not so awkward for her, though. She's kind of either oblivious to it or she just doesn't care or she's not sure how to feel about it. I don't know, but I love the fact that... And it wasn't a main focus of the story either. It was just a fun little side note that they're dealing with. And now, this is a very, still a very strong Barbara Gordon and a very strong-willed one, but she's also very flawed. It, it, this really feels like a very true-to-life and very relatable story. She doesn't even realize some of the mistakes that she's making that are kind of right there in front of her. And she's going to end up learning from them, ultimately, you would think. And, you know, could stretching herself too thin be part of that? And it looks like there was was a particular thing that happened. It was really quick in this issue. And we get another kind of a fallout from that. I'm sorry, I know I'm trying to be spoiler-free here. We get a fallout from that, and you start to wonder just how difficult is her life about to get because maybe she was stretched too thin. That's all I'm going to say. So the first one was a poll for me, Star Trek number one from year five, IDW. This one is a poll for me as well. Loving what Meredith Scott and the team are doing with Batgirl right now. Batgirl number 34 this week. So it's been a good week for a book so far. More reviews, by the way, at downandnerdypodcast.com. That's going to do it for what we're reading up next. Time to talk about more Bat stuff and my spoiler-filled review 
of the Gotham series finale next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, I'm Cameron Beacon Doba from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. You don't get too many finales that call their series finale the beginning, but Gotham absolutely did that. So let's talk about the series finale, which is also the season finale, season five finale of Gotham. This is going to be spoiler spoiler filled from here on out pretty much for the entire run of Gotham at this point, because I could be throwing back callbacks all over the place during this review. And and again, I'm not going to go point by point over the entire episode. I mean, you watched it, you didn't watch it, you're going to watch it. So it's not up to me to recap it. I'm going to talk about what's happening in the episode a little bit, though, before I get to my final thoughts on Gotham itself. I want to actually start off as a just general observation of the episode and something that has been getting a lot of chatter on social media. And I guess it doesn't really surprise me. And that's the fact that as far as Batman is concerned. We don't actually see Batman, full-on see Batman, until the very, very end of the episode. And I know this is starting to draw Smallville comparisons, and I get that. We don't see Bruce Wayne at all in this episode. We don't see David Mazuz as Bruce Wayne, except for the very, very beginning when it's kind of like the very aftermath of him leaving and you see him and you, you assume, we assume he's going to the monastery. That's what we assume he's going to, to, to do his training and, you know, center himself or however you want to describe it. We do see that part with David, but we do not see him as adult Bruce Wayne. Now we do see the different Selena Kyle Catwoman that was cast, but we do not see the adult Bruce Wayne. And I guess that's because, you know, they, they didn't want to recast him. And I guess there's a fair amount of controversy in that as well. But you know what? We got enough moments, I think, of Batman that did we actually need to physically see him performing these acts to know that they were occurring and for it to make more of an impact on the story. Like when he is, and again, a lot of spoilers here, so don't be surprised, when he saves Barbara Gordon, the younger Barbara, Does that mean when he throws the batarangs at Joker, who they don't call the Joker, they're very, very careful about that, by the way. I love the whole, you know, you could call me Jack thing. That was really funny. I definitely laughed at that. So when he's taking out the Joker and saving Barbara Gordon, or helping Jim Gordon save Barbara anyway, would it have meant more if we would have seen him throw the batarang, like actually camera cuts over to to Batman, he throws the batarang, and down goes the Joker? I don't think so. I don't see how that makes more of an impact. It's almost like an, more of an homage to Batman to keep him in the shadows until the very end, especially in the very, very beginning. See, it's, it's hard to forget. It's easy to forget that because we've been with this show for five seasons now. And you feel like you've been with Batman at least for the last season, if not the last season and a half, right? So... You're, you're wondering, you know, what's the deal? This is the beginning of Batman at the end of this show. And here's the other thing that I'm going to use to trump this argument. And that's, we were never supposed to get Batman on this show in the first place. That is not what was going to happen. And as I talked to so many members of the cast and producers over the years on Gotham, I just kept hearing the same thing, and that is that they changed this show based on David, David Mazuz. He earned this. He earned this right to be able to play the role of Batman and become Batman just because of how well he did throughout the course of the show and how much he grew with this character and understood it. So this was almost just as much of an homage to David Mazuz as anything else. And a, you know, it's better than a standing ovation. I can tell you that right now. Just getting to stand there in that bat suit, even if it's only for like five to ten seconds. Being able to stand there, knowing you were in that suit for that final moment of this show. It, it, there, are, there are a few things in, in nerd culture that are better than being able to stand on a bat suit and know that you were in the pantheon of Batman actors forever. And that, whether you loved it or not, that is what David Mazuz is. He is part of that exclusive club now, whether you like it or not. And I love it. I think that he evolved so much over the course of this show. I would have loved to see Cameron Beacondova finish it out 
as Selena Kyle. But this was, by her admission on her social media post, her decision to pass the torch to someone else and let them do this for one last episode. And I, and I thought that she did a very good job, too, by the way. But we don't see a whole lot of her either. We actually don't see a whole lot of everybody. We get to get little bits and pieces here and there. And like the whole crux of the episode was, again, there was going to be a bombing. Again, it was going to be Wayne Tower. They find that out through the course of the investigation. But who's behind him? They make you think it's Riddler at first. Then, of course, they make you think it's Penguin. And then Harvey somehow framed for a murder of a guard at Arkham when everybody escapes. And they find out ultimately that, yes, it is Jeremiah Valeska that's behind the whole thing. And I love the fan service, by the way. This is one of those things where in a series finale like this, and they only had an hour. I really wish that they had given them two. I really think that this episode could have been opened up a lot more if they gave them two hours to go ahead and knock this out. And in a series finale, I really wish that, 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 we, that they could have gotten that. But, I mean, getting to see Riddler in full Riddler garb, I, again, I, could have, I would have loved to see Corey Michael Smith bring that character out even more than he already has. Getting to see the final Penguin look from Robin Lord Taylor, I know Robin was excited about that. And I, I got to tell you, they didn't make him quite as big as they thought they would have, but I think that, that they would have overdone it because Ro- Robin's a very svelte man. So I, I think plumping him up too much wouldn't have made a whole lot of sense. But you, you got the monocle, right? You got the top hat. The, the chest was puffed out a little bit. The gloves were there. I loved the look. It was very basic. And, and the way they called back his relationship with Jim Gordon, and we find out that Gordon throws him in jail like six months after they saved the city, and we don't get a whole lot of reason why that is or what led to him being thrown in jail other than the fact that uh, the guy's a criminal and he probably did something or how Ed ended up in Arkham. Again, criminal probably did something to earn his spot in there. I'm not sure that really needs a whole lot of explanation. I realize that there are some plot holes here in this finale. Again, they're only given, what, 45 minutes after you factor out the commercials to deal with all the aftermath of what happened over the course of a 10-year time jump. I got to tell you, given the circumstances, I thought they did a pretty darn good job with that. And you had to sneak as much in as you possibly could. And you had to see that, you know, Alfred and Lucius are the only ones that know. And as Alfred said, it's our job to serve now. This is what Bruce wants to do. They both support him. So it's Lucius and Alfred's job to now serve that purpose. And and that's kind of, you know, that was that's part of Batman's mythology, right? Is that, you know, you've got very few people that know. And Lucius and Alfred are a couple have been a couple of those people in many iterations that know about what's going on. Somebody's got to create the tech and then somebody's got to be the man at the cave. And that is what Alfred has been. Plus, Alfred is also the one that stitches him up. Lee Tompkins later after that. But we don't we're not going to really see that from Lee. I love the fact that we also got. A little bit of a grown-up Barbara Gordon. We get to see her as she when she's 10. We do not get to see her as Batgirl. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that was going to happen. I did. Although, it's funny because when Batman saves Barbara, she kind of has that look, right? After she gets saved, of course, she's glad the dad's there. Dad helped save her. But she sees Batman, right? And I'm not saying... I, I'm reading way too much into this because I was just excited to watch the episode. I'm thinking, she sees him save her. And that's that spark, right? That's going to make her Batgirl at some point. So that's where my that's where my mind took that. I'm sure that I, I'm running with that ball way too much. But at the same time, I'm okay with that. And let me just talk. I, I need to give a spotlight to Cameron Moynihan and the amazing job that he's done through every iteration of the Joker. I'm going to say it. You guys don't have to say it. Everybody at Gotham, Fox, Warner Brothers, DC, you don't have to say it. I'll say it. What he did with the evolution from Jerome to Jeremiah to Joker, whatever name he had, and then this final form, which was creepy as hell. It really, really was. And the fact that he was basically faking being in a vegetative state for a better part of these 10 years. You want to talk about this elaborate plan. He's like, I was waiting for him to come back because we're bound together. It was not just that line, but it was the way he said it that sent chills up my spine because it's so true, isn't it? How the how Batman and the Joker are just 
bound together. And yeah, you want to say that he easily dispatched Joker in this episode? Yeah, he did. Okay, and, and you know, I would have loved to seen that draw out a little bit more. But just because he gets him with a batarang through the hand, and they save Barbara, and Joker's down, doesn't mean that's it. Okay, how many times has Batman caught the Joker over the years only for the Joker to escape somehow, right? It's not like Batman never caught the Joker. This isn't like a Wiley e. Coyote Roadrunner type of situation, okay? Batman has caught the Joker before. The Joker's gotten away, and the fight lives on. This is the beginning for a reason. The shame is that we will not get to see these play out a little bit longer. I also love the terrified looks that Riddler and Penguin had when they see the bat for the first time. And how about the hanging them from the light pole thing for the cops, right? Another great Batman callback from the beginning days, right? It doesn't matter what iteration you want to talk about. The fact that he leaves the criminals for the cops to pick up and then the whole mystery kind of continues there. There were so many great moments, I thought, throughout this episode. And again, it was a shame they only got an hour to tell the final part of this story. And we do get to see that awkward meeting between Bruce and Selina up on a rooftop. She's kind of in her Catwoman garb. He's in his Batman garb. And, of course, she never turns around to actually look at him. We don't get to see him. And they have that awkward encounter. And he tells her to basically return the thing that she stole. And she says, you know, not a chance in hell or something like that. And then that dance begins, right? So, if anything, I I get the frustrations of only getting to see, actually see Batman for a short amount. But to me, I take a different perspective. I'm grateful for what this show has given us over the years. And the fact that this show, and I'm going to get a little bit nostalgic here over the last five years. I'm not going to bring up all kinds of moments or anything like that. But this show was, and I've said this before, unapologetically its own. It was telling its own story, giving us its own take on characters, giving us its own take on how they thought the journey would go from Bruce Wayne to Batman, from Oswald Cobblepot to the Penguin, from Edward Nigma to the Riddler, and so on and so forth. And then we get other villains mixed in like Hugo Strange and Victor Freeze and the different iterations there and the evolution of Poison Ivy as well. This show never said it was going to be canon from the very beginning. They never claimed that it was going to be canon. They were just telling a story. And was there some overacting at times? Sure. Did I want to rip my ear ears off and throw them at the TV every time I saw Fish Mooney? Sure. I was talking to some fellow fans at WonderCon this year, and I'm not gonna t- I'm not gonna say this person's name because you know it's it's kind of like off the mic chit chat. So I'm not gonna say his name. If he wants to identify himself later on social media, fine. But he said that Gotham, when it hit it hit when it hits it high, when it hit its highs, it hit it out of the park. But there were also some very noticeable lows for the show. And that is so, so true. Whereas there were so many things throughout the course of the years that I loved about Gotham. And there were also those moments where I was screaming at my television and yelling, come on, and not because it wasn't canon, but because I didn't feel like it was either true to what was being done on the show or it was just outright ridiculous. And sometimes shows just have those moments, right? But there were so many great moments on Gotham for me that I forgive those bad moments that did not occur as often as some fans might make you think. And there are plenty of fans that gave up on Gotham early. And and on one hand, I understand that. But on the other hand, I feel like you've been, if you gave up on the show, you've been robbed of the opportunity to see a almost completely unique story and take on the early years of Batman. We never got to experience a young Bruce Wayne for this long. We never got to experience a young Selina Kyle for this long. This is something that could have been appreciated if, if enough fans give it a chance, and, and now it's gone, and we might not get that time back. This is a show that could have run probably a lot longer. We actually could have reached this Batman point and gotten more of a zero-year type of a storyline. I know they kind of tried to mix that in this season on Gotham. We could have got more of that if we got more seasons, but here we are, five seasons, and we are in an end. I'm not saying that the show would have gone on longer than five seasons 
but maybe that was the plan all along. But I mean, imagine if it ran 10, where we would be if we got 10 seasons of Gotham. So all in all, I thought it was a great finale, great great way to round out the show. Again, I wish they would have gotten more time. And again, I didn't want to touch on absolutely every single little bit, but I think it was a very fitting finale. And I will miss Gotham a lot. It was one of those shows that I always watched first. I watch a lot of TV, guys. And this is one of those shows that I would always watch, maybe not first, but one of my first that I would watch. And I will miss Gotham. Thanks so much to everybody involved in the show, the cast, the crew, the writers, anybody involved in Gotham. Thank you so much for not being afraid to tell your story. Despite any criticisms that you might have gotten, you did not stray from telling your story. And I appreciated the hell out of it. So thank you so much for that. It's going to do it for my spoiler field review of the Gotham series finale. Up next, there's still nerd news to talk about. So we'll do that on the Down and Nerdy podcast. Hey, this is David Zeus from Gotham on Fox, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy podcast. Sounds like the Avengers aren't the only ones that have their end game. It's time for nerd news. The reason I say that is, of course, Avengers end game opening up. This weekend, maybe you've seen it already, maybe you haven't, don't worry, not going to spoil the end game here, but I will tell you that the Russo brothers apparently are done with Marvel Studios. In an interview with Games Radar, it was Anthony Russo said, that said, it's our end game, this is a quote, quote, it's our end game, at least for now. Okay, so that's the kicker, at least for now. They just basically said there's no plans right now for them to make any more Marvel movies. Didn't exactly close the door on it either but I mean don't they deserve a break because I I gotta tell you I mean this all this all really started like this story really started with Winter Soldier I know you could go all the way back to the very very beginning and that makes sense but this re this end game story really started with Winter Soldier didn't it and the Russo brothers have been responsible for some of the best if not the best Marvel movies since then, and I'm not going to get in the whole debate and start ranking. I'm not going to do in the, any of that clickbaity type stuff. No, no, no. I'm just saying that uh, think of all the Marvel movies that have been out so far, including Endgame, whether you've seen it or not. And you tell me if the Russo brothers don't have their hands in almost all of those top Marvel movies. I mean, everybody talks about Kevin Feige, and I understand that. And Kevin Feige's played a huge, huge role in what has become Marvel Studios, what was before the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But, I mean, where would this Marvel Studios be without the Russos? And I'm not going to sit up here on my high horse and say that nobody else could have done the job. But it was their minds that really brought this thing to the head to the head that it is now, right? It's, it's their vision that has gotten us to where we are, really, in a large part. I mean, there were plenty of other visions mixed in there, and they certainly weren't the only ones responsible but they were a huge, and to, to undertake something like this is not easy. Taking all of these stories and all of these characters who have large followings in their own right for their own solo movies, bringing them all together for these epics is not easy. And I'm not just talking about Endgame. I'm talking about everything that's led up to that. Because every, every movie that the Russos have been a part of, it seems like, has been somewhat of an epic. And the way you deal with that, not just the characters, but the actors and actresses themselves, you know, balancing all of these big names and big stars and making sure the story makes sense, not forcing things. And there's just so much that has to go right to make these movies successful. And yet the Russo brothers seem to be able to do that without breaking a sweat, it seems like. So, I mean, they've absolutely... Deserve to break, and and I mean, I thank them for what they've done. I've already seen Avengers Endgame. Not going to spoil it, but I am going to. I do want to talk about it here for just a couple minutes because, first of all, if you're worrying about having to pee during the movie, I know it's three hours long. If you're worried about having to get up to go to the bathroom, you're not going to have to worry about it because you're going to be too busy crying your eyes out. You'll be dehydrated anyway, so it doesn't matter. You won't have to worry. The the liquid's going to come out somewhere. Let's just put it that way. So you won't have to pee. I didn't. And a lot of people in my theater didn't either, actually. So that that wasn't really a big concern. But I will say that uh, there's just so much that I could, that I want to say, but I can't. I don't even really want to do it out of context. But there's going to be some stuff that 
you were probably expecting, you will get what you want out of this. That much I can tell you for sure. I, I really enjoyed it. It really did feel like the perfect way to say goodbye to this phase. And to, I know that Spider-Man Far From Home is going to be the end of this phase. So, so don't at me on that. It just felt like the perfect way to say goodbye to this story. It really feels like this is where things are going to start fresh when they open up this next phase. And there is a specific moment towards the end of the movie, as a matter of fact, that almost was Marvel Studios saying, here you go. And I'm not saying that these characters will never be back. There's no spoilers here. I'm not going to tell you who's going to be back, who I think is going to be back, who lives, who dies, none of that stuff. Not telling you any of that. What I'm saying is, is that there, there was, there's, it's pretty clear what characters were, are going to be featured going forward. That much I could tell you for sure. There are, you know what characters you're going to be seeing going forward. And maybe some of them are ones that we've been seeing all along. Maybe they're not. I'm not going to tell you any of that stuff. I'm not spoiling anything Avengers Endgame related right now. I'm, going to t- I'm just going to tell you that. But I really, really enjoyed it. it. It's every bit the epic that lives up to the hype. And that doesn't happen very often. So congratulations to them on that. And my spoiler-filled review of Avengers Endgame going to be happening next week. So we'll just hold off on that. We have another epic coming up in 2020, though. April 2020, as a matter of fact. And that is Bond 25. We actually got some details from a kind of a launch, an unveiling event, if you will, that was happening in Jamaica. I mean, to, to even get to 25 movies for any character is is pretty huge. I mean, the Marvel Cinematic Universe hasn't even hit that many movies yet. And yet James Bond now on his own is at his 25th. It all started with Dr. No, too. I mean, almost 60 years ago. It's crazy to think that we're here now. So some of the cast, well, actually the cast was announced and a couple of other things as well. So we've got, you know, no big surprise, Daniel Craig going to be back as 007. The biggest surprise and a rumor that ended up being true is that Rami Malek will be playing the villain in the upcoming Bond movie. I'm super stoked for that because I always thought Rami Malek would make a great, like, really creepy, intense villain. And I think that he just screams Bond villain to me. I don't know why. And I, I thought that even before the rumors started of him potentially being in this movie, like, man, he would make a great Bond villain at some point. And it looks like that's exactly... What's going to be happening? And I mean, looking down the list here, where you've got David Denick, who's going to be in the movie. Anna de Armas is going to be there. Bill Magnuson. You've got some people coming back, too. Like, you've got Ray Fiennes. You've got Felix Leiter is going to be coming back. Rory Kinnear is going to be in the movie. There's, there's a whole bunch of different names that are announced here. we get some locations as well. We're going to have Jamaica, which, of course, makes sense. Norway, London, and Italy are going to be a part of it. Of course, you've got Kerry Joji Fukunaga, that's going to be directing. Now, we do know that it's going to be written by Neil Purvis, Robert Wade, Scott Z. Burns, and Phoebe Waller-Bridge. So that is who's going to be on the writing team for Bond 25. We don't really get a whole lot. We don't get a title, too, by the way. There's no title. They're just going to be calling it Bond 25 for now. So I guess working title is the best way to put it at this point. I mean, you got to save something for like when the first trailer comes out, right? Where you can unveil that. Maybe we'll get something at Comic-Con. That'd be pretty cool to get the title for the Bond movie at Comic-Con. But it just seemed like there was a lot of talk at this event. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Just seemed like Dr. No and GoldenEye came up a lot during this. I mean, maybe it's just me. Correct me if I'm wrong there, but that seemed to be what got the most talk. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to get Dr. I or the Golden No or anything like that is this movie. It just seemed interesting that those seemed to be a couple of the movies that really sort of stood out in a way in this event. So, I mean, if they wanted to sort of, sort of do something similar along those lines, I wouldn't be sad. I love both of those movies, so I'm, I'm cool with that if that's what they want to do. But I really hope that, and, and you really can't live up to the hype of a movie like Avengers Endgame, but I, I really hope that Bond 25 serves as that, you know, perfect ending to this story, right? That's gone on for a few movies now. And sometimes the Bond movies have gotten that right, and sometimes they haven't. So I'm interested to see which side of the coin this falls on. Let's move from one epic to another, but in a different way. We've got Star Wars Galaxy's Edge 
which is going to be opening at Disney Parks Anaheim starting on May the 31st. And we get some details now, or at least initial details anyway, from various reports about how that's going to go. Now, hotels, you know, booked up for that opening weekend for sure, as far as the reports have been concerned. But here's the deal. They're accepting reservations starting on May the 5th to get into Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. Now, it looks like that's going to be starting 8 a.m. That that looks like that's going to be Pacific time, or they said Arizona time. So I'm not the mayor of time zones here, so if you want to look that up and find out which time zone that is, I'm cool with that. I think it's Pacific time. Anyway, I mean, that's when the details will be posted, then I think they said 10 a.m. is when the reservations are going to start to go out. Now, if you've already booked the hotel, if you're already good, you've probably already gotten your email, so you're okay with that. But here's the kicker. During the first month, you're only going to be able to explore the Black Spire Outpost for four hours, and then it's time for you to leave. This is going to be a strict time limit, and there's, maybe you're upset about that. Maybe you're not. Maybe you understand it. See, to me, there's a couple of different ways of looking at this. You can either be mad and say, that's not enough time. How am I going to get to do everything I want to do? That's ridiculous. I'm spending all this money, yada, 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 and so on and so forth. But you got to control the crowds somehow. Imagine if Disney did nothing. They did absolutely nothing, right? So then what? Then it's overcrowded. And think about the lines that you're standing in, not just for rides or to get in to see some of this cool stuff, for food, for merchandise. You're going to burn through a lot of time. And the park's not open forever. Okay, that park's going to close eventually. So either way, you're not seeing everything. At least this four-hour window, what they're doing here, at least this gives you a chance. Now, the only kicker here is they are going to rely on the honor system. I don't know how much they're going to have people throwing people out of the park when their four hours are done. Or maybe there's going to be some sort of a text alert or something. I'm sure that, I mean, it's Disney. They're going to figure out a way to manage this whole thing, right? The other way to look at this is, is that, of course, Disney realizes that you're not going to see everything. I mean, I'm not putting words in Disney's mouth here, but this is still a business. And quite frankly, they want you to come back a second time. They want you to want to come back because you didn't see everything. Doesn't that make sense? That puts more money in their pocket. Whether you're staying at their hotels or not, you're still buying a park ticket, which you have to do when you go to get, you can't just go to galaxy's edge. You have to also buy a ticket for Disney parks when you do so. Now this whole system I'm talking about only runs for the first month that it's open. After that, it looks like there is still going to be some sort of a lottery system, but there's no word on any restrictions or anything like that. But I mean, it doesn't matter if you're coming from out of town or whatever. Disney wants you to have to come back to galaxy's edge more than once to be able to see everything because that's more money in their pocket. And it's Star Wars. They know how much you love it. Just like we know how much we love it. They're going to make you come back a second time. And and quite frankly, hard to be mad at them about that, right? Just be happy to the, the fact that you're getting this and the fact that you're actually getting some sort of a chance that the crowds are going to be at least a little bit controlled anyway. So I understand the frustration. I really, really do. But I think this is really going to work out for the best. Now we ask the question, how do you save yourself from yourself? We have a new movie coming out from Will Smith and Will Smith, basically, and it's Gemini Man from Paramount. Going to be coming out October 11th of this year. Going to talk about the trailer a little bit because we have a man who's being chased by a younger assassin that seems to know his every move. And if you watch the trailer, you come to find out, they say, you know, he knows your every move because he's you. Now, it's hard to tell if this is a time travel thing, but this definitely seems to be somewhat of a clone thing that we've got going on. So you've got 50-year-old Will Smith and 20-something-year-old Will Smith on the screen at the same time. Now, the action does look pretty good. I mean, that's an intriguing enough story, right? I, I, th- I actually think that they might have something here, but it's all in the execution. But from what you see about the effects, they look pretty darn good. I mean, you've got Ang Lee, who's who's really, really good with movies with very stunning effects. I mean, if, if you want visually stunning, you hire Ang Lee. So that's what I think that they've definitely got a good shot at getting right in this movie. But the, the, the storyline about the whole 
younger self versus older self thing. I mean, I get it. And I certainly think that it could work. And, you know, at one point you've got somebody saying to, to the assassin, like, I don't know why it's so hard for you to kill this man. And it's like, you know, I don't know. Maybe it's because this looks just like me. And that, and that kind of creeps me out a little bit. This isn't just some regular job that you sent me out to do here. So to me, it's, this is one of those things that, I mean, it could go really, really well, or it could end up just feeling clunky and, and just action for the sake of action. But I mean, when somebody like Ang Lee involved, also Will Smith as well, I'm not saying Will Smith's never made any clunkers, but it seems like there's, there's some, there's a good base here. And I mean, it makes me think of Looper actually. I mean, you know, that ended up being one of the twists of Looper at the end, actually. So it makes me think of that movie a little bit, but a little bit, it seems like a lighter tone anyway. And it, and it seems maybe not as much sci-fi as Looper. Although how much can you learn from the first trailer? So, well, obviously we'll get to the science of how we're able to have this clone of Will Smith fighting against Will Smith. They'll get to that at the movie at some point, I'm sure. So, I'm willing to give this one a shot. October 11th is when we can catch Gemini Man. Curious to see what you think about it, though. So leave a comment if you're listening on SoundCloud or, of course, tweet us at DownandNerdy757. It's going to do it for Nerd News. Up next, going to talk to the cast and executive producer of The 100 about Season 6. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Cassia Tellis from The 100, and you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Got ourselves a one-way ticket to Sanctum. That's right. Season 6 of The 100 is going to be premiering this coming week. And I had such a great time talking to the cast and executive producer at WonderCon this year. I mean, they're pretty tight-lipped, and that's understandable. So let's see what we can get out of them, shall we? Let's start out with Richard Harmon, who, of course, plays John Murphy, and Sachin Sachel, who plays Dr. Eric Jackson. The first question I asked them was, hey, you just woke up from such a long nap. What was that like? Well, you guys just woke up after what, like the longest nap ever. How longest, that it was a good nap. Feeling it was fine. A good nap. Feeling refreshed. I feel like that's oversleeping. But has anybody actually slept on the show? It might be. We might have been due. I've slept twice on the show. You see me fall asleep. <laughs> like you see me like like startled awake twice. <laughs> Generally for a com- for a comedic bit because my life's one big joke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Murphy's always in the middle of. I feel like Jackson's hasn't slept the entire episode. He's got these bags under his eyes. You are wired. He's just wired all the time. Everybody's always, he's a doctor. If everybody's always in pain, which they are, when would he sleep? And you've got the drugs to keep you up. Yep, there you go. Right. That's why I took the chip. I was just so tired. (laughs) (laughs) The next question for the guys was, what's the evolution of your character been like from the pilot to now? Oh, man. That's wild. There's so much growing that goes on. Yeah. Um, There's so much that's happened. Yeah, without giving too much away, I think this season is a season of growth for everybody. Yeah. Quite exponentially. Yeah. Um, some, you know, some growing, some some dips, yep. peaks and valleys. Peaks and valleys, Maybe but peaks growth. and valleys. Because there's literally a new world. That, yes. So we've had to deal with a lot of new things that we've never had to deal with before. But we like when we were in the, in the pilot and early on we were in the ship, we knew about Earth. We knew about it. Literally, we're in a new place that we've never felt before, completely unprepared, never even heard about it. Yeah. So this, uh, the dip peaks and valleys peaks are from valleys, peaks the people having to deal with something that's just shockingly different. Yeah, it's going to be fun. Yeah. My last question for Richard and Sachin was, I mean, it doesn't seem like they're exactly rolling out the red red carpet or welcome wagon for you down there, so talk about that a little bit. Wait, I was going to say, it doesn't seem like they're exactly rolling out the welcome wagon for yeah, you guys. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the planet's got its own agenda, I feel. Yeah, the planet isn't even rolling we, out. We weren't part of their plan. No, not at all. <laughs> we, so never, we never are. Whoever these people are have been living a certain way, and then all of a sudden, like, these... Yeah. People come down and something happens. I'm sure. Yep, something happens. Imagine nothing not happens. Not a lot of, not a lot of talk <laughs> about the people on the planet. But the, it was in the DNR. Happens. <laughs> something happens. Did you not get the DNR? Do you want me to send it to you? No, I got it. I'll forward it. <laughs> the, the 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 thing, the planet. Things itself. happen. People will be entertained. I hope. 
It's a brave new world. Entertained and frightened. Next to sit down was a couple of newbies, or at least relative newbies anyway. Shannon Cook, who play, of course plays Jordan Green, and J.R. Bourne, who plays Russell, one of the new leaders that they're going to come in contact with. So my question was, you know, what's it like to jump into a show that's already been five seasons in? What's going <laughs> yeah. on with you yeah. guys? You're, into, you're jumping in this crazy new world, and it's yeah. the sixth season. What's it been like to kind of jump into something that's already been around for so long? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot, lot to fill because everyone's formed a family and they know each other so well and I'm coming there like so excited and, uh, you know, out of my depth and ways, but, you know, having a great time and loving, yeah, it's just great. It's yeah. Awesome. I think this, I think for both of us, there's this, uh, there's this Shannon and JR sort of, you know, approach to a show that's so established and a cast and a crew and, and, and every single element of that of that functioning machine is so well sort of done is that as just actors coming into that and they were brilliantly welcoming to us but then I think also the characters you know um, yours is such an amazing every time I hear you talk about it I sort of you know the idea that your parents passed, but then they're, you're left, and now you're this. Oh, I just think it's uh, you know. It's a gift when I it, Yeah, it's beautiful. And Russell is. I I, I love Russell. He's Jason. The whole writing uh, room, just a ridiculously layered and uh, charismatic character, and I loved, loved, loved. Uh, you know, getting to know him. The next question was to JR because I think folks are wondering, you know, what can he actually tell us about Russell? I think that I think that without giving anything away, you know, that that word charismatic does stand out because there's so many, you know, there's there's if you look up that definition and the synonyms to it or the, the you know, the, it, it describes a lot of Russell. Um, and I think him being unlike any other character that these guys have seen in the past 5 seasons adds another element of uh, sort of uniqueness and challenge to the hundred gang, and then the society that I lead is is it's a it's a much more peaceful environment and world than these guys have ever sort of come come across in the whole five seasons. So then there's that sort of challenge of how do you guys adapt to that? Next to sit down, executive producer Jason Rothenberg. First question for him was, I mean, are the new people that they're going to encounter on the ground now descendants of the people on the Allegis 3? Hear what he had to say about that. Well, ye, we've seen the trailer. We know that they look like human beings. So, uh, yes, that's a safe assumption. I don't think that's spoiling too much. They're, they're definitely, you know, one of the stories that I was sort of inspired by was the Roanoke Colony. Okay. You know, how, like, they got to the Roanoke Colony mm -hmm. at some point and there was nobody there. What happened to everybody? And so the idea of getting to this colony, getting to this compound and finding it totally empty was and the, solving the mystery of that was something that was somewhere in my head as we were breaking the first couple episodes. So, so yes, they built it. Where they are now is a question. And then once I heard that answer, I had to ask him if this was going to be similar to the Lost Colony story. So it's very Lost Colony-ish? Well, just in what the episode we showed today, when they arrive, there's nobody home. I see what you're saying. Okay. And they're wondering where everybody is, and there's a couple lines of dialogue about, uh, to the effect of, you know, it's too well-maintained to be abandoned. So there are clues as to the fact that it's not an abandoned colony, but... That lost colony story, the mystery is is answered fairly, fairly quickly. Not in the first couple, but I, I don't want to get too deep into it. But yes, we'll we'll understand everything. Jr., who is just sitting in the seat that I am sitting in, uh, arrives fairly early on in the season, and we start to put it together. Next up was an interesting question, actually, that was asked of Jason Rothenberg. You know, Monty's wish that we saw. Last season is the wish for them uh, to do better. Too much to ask of these of these folks. It's it, it's always been part of the show. This idea of how far will you go to survive? How far will you go to, you know, save your people? Basically, at what point does the good guy become the bad guy? Because he's done so much in the name of you know saving your people. And I think that's a you know thing we deal with in the real world all the time. What's what's right and wrong in terms of national defense, for instance. Um, and so, you know, to me, there's always this sort of gray area, you know, we're not trying to say they're the good guys or the bad guys, they're just trying to survive. Would it be great if we could transcend that sort of human instinct to kill each other over land or whatever the case may be? 
yes, it would be. I do think it's human nature, unfortunately, to fight. Unfortunately, we've see, we see that in, in our world. Our characters will try to do better, and they're going to run into, like, at some point, at some point it's hard. How long do you stop fighting when somebody's coming at you? That's not necessarily a spoiler, but, you know, uh, Clark is going to try really hard to honor that. You know, she wants to do better. She needs to prove to uh, certain elements that, that they have changed and that they're willing to. So it's a, it's a good question, and it's something that, that they'll wrestle with all season, really. Final question that I wanted to ask Jason Rothenberg was, does season six really feel like a fresh start for the show. When you've had a show that's entering into its sixth season, you don't really get many opportunities for a fresh start. When you yeah. say something like end of book one, does season six really kind of feel like a fresh start for you guys and your characters? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I try every season to kind of reboot it and, and tell a new sort of A story for the season. I've always thought of it as a movie, basically. Every year is, it's, is a new movie. But this time, for sure. I mean, we were... The idea of end book one and you know, beginning of book two was to say this is almost a new show. When I said, you know, repiloting this on a broadcast schedule, I'm not kidding. It, it is thematically different. It looks different. The color palette is different. The way we shot it is different. Um, you know, they're on a different world. It's, it, it, the characters are, it's, to me, it's a fascinating, you know, I'm not sure this has been done before. Maybe it has, but, you know, taking these people that we know and love uh, and putting them in a totally new, you know, environment with new threats and new villains and new um, allies. So it's going to be interesting to see if people get on board. I hope they do. I also think it's really hardcore sci-fi, so it's much more sci-fi than it has been in the past. So, you know, I'm hoping we can get fans of science fiction to come back if they left. I'm not sure they did, but, you know, to me... The, again, like to, not to rain on the pilot too much, but the first couple episodes felt a little lighter than the show ultimately became, a different kind of show than I think the show became. And so I, I definitely noticed people who uh, stopped watching who were hardcore sci-fi fans, and I'm hoping we can maybe reel them back in with this, some of the storytelling this year's out of there, out of this world. Next to sit down was the lovely and talented Eliza Taylor, of course, plays Clark Griffin. First question up for her was, what side of Clark will we actually see this season? A completely different one. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, without giving away too much, it's certainly one of the most challenging things that I've ever had to do as an actor, and I've been in this, in the TV industry for 20 years now, which is nuts. Um, so yeah, I think uh, it's it's certainly it's given me a chance to kind of expand my skill set and uh, and explore a different side of clock that I didn't really know existed. My question for Eliza was, how much can you tell us about the dynamic between Clark and Russell based on what we've seen so far? I've seen in one of the trailers, it seems like Clark and Russell have a couple of interesting interactions. How much can you tell us about their dynamic going into this season? Um, yeah, I mean, one thing that I love about their relationship is that, that Clark and Russell, I mean, they're both the leaders of their respective people. Um, Russell is you know, in charge in Sanctum and Clark is in charge of her people or, you know, has to take responsibility for her people. So she uh, identifies with him, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they always see eye to eye, you know. So there's a lot of conflict, but there's also a lot of mutual respect, which I find really interesting. And thank God JR is, has been such an incredible actor on the show. Like, it's doing scenes with him has been so fun. Uh, and I, I really can't wait until I can say more about it once it airs. <laughs> Final question for Eliza was, Clark isn't kind of very well liked at the beginning of the season apparently, so how is that going to play out this season? I think it's, uh, you know, she's grown a very thick skin over the years and over the last 125 years or whatever it is. Um, and while it hurts, you know, she's gotten very good at compartmentalizing, going, okay, What's more important here, that is to survive and keep these people alive who hate me, but keep them alive, you know. Um, and I kind of respect her for that. I don't, 
I mean, it's hard to be trying to lead a group of people who actively dislike you. <laughs> um, but it makes her look at herself, and I think she really does uh, step up to the task of going, okay, let's talk about it. What's your problem? Let's go. You know, and that's that's something you don't really see Clark do very often. She usually presses on, but she addresses things this season. Next up was the lovely and talented Marie Evgaropoulos, and of course she plays Octavia, or maybe there's another name. So the first question for her actually was, does she get a new title this season? Yeah, she's had all kinds. Sky Girl, the girl under the floor, yeah. Sky Ripper, Blood Raina. There was one oh, for missing half a one. second in the beginning of the season five. Grounder Pounder? No. <laughs> My most proud one said no one ever. Yeah. The fans will, the fans will name me, if, if anything. <laughs> yeah. They're good at that. They're very creative. My question for Marie was, will there be any fence mending between her and Bellamy coming up at some point this season? With those emotions, does that mean a lot of fence mending with Bellamy coming up this season? Well, there's definitely scenes with Bellamy. However, oh, I can't spoil that either. Um, <laughs> my boss is sat like two feet from me right now. Um, <laughs> I got an email about what not to say. Um... Say your question again, so I Is can answer this. Is there any that's with Bellamy that we can at least uh, the effort being there coming up to start the season? Well, we definitely interact this season. Um, last time you saw Bellamy and Octavia, was Bellamy poisoned Octavia, and then she threw him in the fighting pit. So there's a lot of that's like you know brother sister rivalry to the max. So there's definitely some mending to do. You'll see. And finally, last question for her was, will we see a new side of Octavia's personality coming up in season six? I mean, I think I have like 800 layers to my personality. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm a Gemini. So, you know, there's two of me. Um, yes, uh, this season you'll see a very different um, Octavia, I think. Every season's been a, a new Octavia, don't yes. you think? Yeah, yeah. I agree. That's why um, it's so much fun to play her because I don't get bored. <laughs> Things make me bored quickly. Places, relationships, whatever. <laughs> so I like it that the character's always changing too and I'm lucky that Jason and the writers always switch it up for me and they write for my strengths, they write for my um, athletic ability, um, which I really love doing on the show. That's why Octavia's a badass because I've learned how to be one. So, because of them because they train me hard every day, so it's really cool. Last to sit down with us to talk about the 100 at WonderCon was Tasha Tellis, who of course plays Echo. We've had her on the show before. First question for her was, how has Echo changed since we first saw her on the show? She isn't as reactive. You know, like how everyone says Echo tried to kill Octavia. She actually tried to not kill Octavia. <laughs> that was a reaction. It was like built into her system. Like she's always lived out of total fear and total um, threat. So she was a lot more reactive before and now she's kind of a lot more peaceful. Well, peaceful. She's a lot more observant, we'll say. And... Um, She's still participating and doing things for the group, though. That's always her jam. Yeah. Next question was definitely an interesting one to see exactly how she would answer it, and that is, are there any episodes that she was looking forward to the fans seeing this upcoming season? Yeah. I mean, this season, like, there was a couple episodes. You know, there's some episodes where you kind of coast, and when you're in an ensemble cast, there's so much happening, and the storyline will shift between this focus and that focus. And so some days you can just chill out, and then, other, and then all of a sudden you'll turn the page, and you're like, okay, this is a big... And you just feel the immense amount of work that you know that you have to do before your episode and that happened a few times this season where you get to push yourself um, to the boundaries of your acting you know through the character and explore your character in those extremities so I'm very excited about this season for that reason yeah and finally my question for Tasia was are we going to see more with her and Bellamy coming up this season Things kind of drifted away from Echo and Bellamy after things got so crazy in season five. Are we going to get back to that a little bit this season? 
Uh, what do you mean about like about their their relationship and how, how things are going? You want to hang them? out with them? You want to see them go on dates and stuff like that? Is that, is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, I'm just saying, stranger things have happened. Right? There's, there's something there. It just turns into a thing? dating show. <laughs> um, I mean, I think that the thing with the two of them is they're always in cahoots. They're always she's anticipating how he's feeling, and she's really good, way better than I am. It, at reading people and reading situations and one thing that she is reading from him is the Octavia issue and so I think for her that's a big issue because I think Echo needs to know that he's capable of forgiveness in a big way you know and Echo knows that she has done so many bad things herself that he needs to be able to extend his forgiveness to his sister you know she's she's a lot about fam family and like loyalty and stuff like that so when she binds with the group that's becomes her pod um, so I think she it, it's a disarming for her that you know he's he's frazzled and he she, she knows he's upset without Octavia in his life and I think she's trying to help him get back to a place of peace because he's certainly been there for her in the past too. exactly exactly First of all, I want to say congratulations before season six, season six even airs and the 100 has already been renewed for a season seven. If you haven't actually gotten a chance to watch the 100 before, it's really, really interesting. And I love the fact Jason Rothenberg at one point during our interview said, going to get back to a little bit more of the sci-fi of the show this upcoming season, which I think is going to be really, really interesting. But they, it just does the post-apocalyptic uh, post thing. So well, and it's not typical, and that's one of the things I love so much about the 100. Make sure you're watching the season six premiere on the CW, April the 30th. That is a Tuesday at 9 p.m. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thank you so much to the cast and producer of the 100 for joining me at WonderCon. If you want to see more about our podcast, go to our website, downandnerdypodcast.com. Also, make sure you're following us on social media as well, at downandnerdy757 on Twitter and Instagram, and facebook.com slash downandnerdy as well. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly, be good to your fellow nerds, and don't spoil the endgame.